Welcome to a special episode of the Science and the City podcast, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. On December 12th of 2013, the Sackler Institute hosted an event at the Academy entitled Frontiers in Agricultural Sustainability, studying the protein supply chain to improve dietary quality. This brought together a diverse group of leaders from the scientific research community, government, NGOs, and the food industry to discuss the challenge of making sure there's sufficient protein, an absolutely critical nutrient for human health, available to everyone in the world, no matter their economic situation or where they live. To learn in detail what protein is exactly and how it's used in the body, please listen to a previous episode of the podcast entitled Eating Animals, which aired in the summer of 2013 as part of our A Thought for Food series. But for now, suffice it to say that protein is the primary building block of most of the organs and tissues that make up our body, and we need a steady supply of it in our diet in order to keep ourselves in good working order. This is a big problem in many parts of the world today, particularly amongst the poor in the developing world who mostly live on staple carbohydrate-heavy foods like rice or bread, which are also very low in protein. Here's Dr. Dennis Miller, chair of the Department of Food Science at Cornell, speaking from the podium at that event. The problems with cereals as a source of protein is that they tend to be relatively low in terms of concentration of protein, around 8 to 10 percent concentration on a dry weight basis. Also, the limiting amino acid or the quality of the proteins tend to be lower in cereals than they do in these other protein sources. Um, if you base the estimate on total protein available for consumption uh, in various regions and countries around the world, you can see that in, in Africa and South Asia, there's a significant prevalence of protein malnutrition or at least a, a risk for protein malnutrition or protein inadequacy. But if you take into account utilizable protein, you can see that the estimates of protein inadequacy are much higher, nearly double, in those areas. This is a problem that's going to continue to compound as the world's population continues to grow. Here's Dr. Charles Shastine, the Senior Science Fellow at DuPont Nutrition and Health. You have one billion new humans every 12 to 13 years. For addition, each additional billion people we add to the planet, we need to supply approximately 27 to 30 billion pounds of quality protein per year just to meet minimum protein requirements. Daunting. At the center of this are the interlocked problems of protein quality and utilizability, which, simply put, are how complete proteins are and how efficiently they can be digested and metabolized. A protein is made up of component elements called amino acids, some of which the body can make out of other things, but some of which, called essential amino acids, have to be eaten. There's no other way to get them. Foods that contain all nine essential amino acids are called complete or high-quality proteins. Those that don't are called incomplete proteins. Here's Dr. Miller again. So when you put the two together and you multiply the, the, amino, the limiting amino acid times the digestibility of the protein, um, you can see that because the digestibility of plant protein proteins from plant sources tends to be lower than proteins from animal sources, you end up with a protein quality estimate and a PD-COS estimate that's only about maybe 40, from, from 30 or 40 to 50 percent of the ideal protein quality that you would have in an ideal protein in terms of its amino acid 
balance, and its digestibility. Whereas if you look at the grain legumes, you can see that the PD cost levels are substantially higher than they are for the cereal grains. And then if you look at animal source foods, you will see that they're even higher. This is a key to the difficulty of providing sufficient high-quality protein to people who don't get enough of it in their daily diet. The richest sources of complete proteins come from animals, eggs, and meat, be it red meat, poultry, or fish. Here's Dr. Josip Simunovich, associate professor at North Carolina State University, speaking about the nutritional value of meat. Nutritionally, it is the source of the most superior proteins available in uh, human uh, nutrition. In addition to that, some very unique and easily absorbable micronutrients like iron, uh, zinc, and some other minerals are abundant in, in, in meat sources. It is a key uh, to uh, proper development, especially of, of brain function during early childhood, and uh, is practically a necessity to consume during pregnancy, right? And finally, it tastes good. And, and uh, we as a, as a race and as a number of cultures are used to it and value it and like it. Raising animals is complicated for a number of reasons, though, not the least of which that it's tremendously expensive because most animals take longer to come to maturity than most plants and because they use a lot more land and water than other kinds of agriculture, both of which are very limited resources. By some estimates, it requires 1,500 gallons of water to produce just one pound of edible meat. And livestock production uses up to 70% of the world's arable land. Modern large-scale meat production is also highly mechanized, so it uses a great deal of another limited resource, oil. Here's Dr. Jeffrey von Maltzahn, a principal at a private research and development company called Flagship Venture Labs. And it's pretty striking to think that a whole process that's meant to be driven by the energy of sunlight sometimes contains more petroleum energy in the process of producing our food than we actually have in the calories of the food that we're consuming. So, for example, if you take the steak on there, there's up to 50 times as much petroleum energy, kilocalories of petroleum utilized to make each kilocalorie of steak that comes out of that. It's a pretty sobering thing. And the problems with animal products don't stop there. Some studies have shown that frequent consumption of meat can be correlated with all kinds of serious chronic health problems. Here's Dr. Samunovich again. Diabetes, uh, strokes, uh, etc. Those are the known things, but this is associated with excessive consumption, and particularly with processed uh, meats. Animal products are also very difficult to store, package, and transport safely because they're an attractive breeding ground for all kinds of microorganisms, many of which can make people very sick. And those include uh, Campylobacter, Listeria, Salmonella, Escherichia coli, different types of Clostridia, and particularly Clostridium botulinum, which is the target microorganism for sterilization. And finally, the superugly is the, uh, by now, pretty much prevalent presence of multi-antibiotic-resistant bacteria that cause thousands of illnesses, hundreds of thousands of illnesses, and, and I think it was 23,000 deaths per year in the United States. An obvious potential solution to the problems with meat 
is that while there aren't plant sources of protein that are quite as efficient as the animal sources, there are some that come awfully close. One group that stands out are something called grain legumes, or pulses, a family of plants that includes most kinds of beans, chickpeas, black-eyed peas, and lentils, as well as the most famous vegetable source of protein, soybeans. Here's Dr. Irvin Witters, professor of horticulture at Michigan State. We describe them as a multifunctional crop. Most dietitians that you will listen to and read these days, that's how they characterize them. It's in part due to the protein content, but it's also due to the fact that they have complex carbohydrate. They have uh, high levels of iron and zinc. They have uh, uh, fiber. They have vitamin B. They're, they're a good source of other nutrients. A recent publication came out and said they're one of the most affordable foods for the return, the nutritional return that one receives. These kinds of foods can become even more successful as protein sources by mixing them in the right combinations, something traditional cuisines have often been remarkably good at. For instance, hummus is a much better source of complete protein than either of its two main ingredients, chickpeas and sesame seeds, are by themselves. Here's Dr. Miller again. We've known for centuries, actually, that we can complement proteins. So if we use proteins from different sources that have different amino acid patterns, some are higher in one amino acid and lower in another, and vice versa, we can end up with basically uh, a protein score of the combination that's higher than the mean score of the two, two protein sources that are put together. So that's, and, and traditionally, many societies like in, in Latin America, where maize and beans have been consumed for centuries, we've known this for many, many centuries. So that's, that's one way that protein quality can be improved. With all of this, though, animal source foods have nutritional strengths that are difficult to match. For one thing, meat is rich in easily absorbable forms of important micronutrients, like the minerals iron and zinc, that some studies show are more difficult for the body to make use of when they're obtained from plant sources. Many experts believe that the organic acid taurine should be added to that list. Also, we can't forget the original reason that raising livestock became so popular. There are many parts of the world, called plains or savannas or rangeland, where the only plants that grow well are grasses that human beings can't digest. In an area like that, a herd of cows can be an invaluable tool for turning the inedible, grass, into the nutritious, meat and milk. Here's Dr. Gene Steiner, director of the United States Department of Agriculture's Grazing Lands Research Laboratory. The global distribution of grazing lands indicates there are many parts of the world where, where grasslands or rangelands dominate up to almost 100% of the land use. And this includes uh, many of the, the poorest in uh, most food insecure regions that we've been hearing about. It, these regions are in grasslands generally because of low precipitation, uh, uh, steep or steep topographies, stony soils. There are soils in climates that aren't really suited to other types of agriculture. Meaning that a meat-heavy diet might be a luxury in one part of the world, but a necessity in another. And so we wind up with this complex back and forth about the relative merits of plant versus animal sources of proteins. Here, 
making an admirably successful attempt to sum up both sides of this complex debate in just a few sentences, is the conference's keynote speaker. Dr. Barbara Burlingame, Deputy Director of the Nutrition Division of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. We have a dilemma. We have, uh, we have livestock, rich source of micronutrients. But we know from our FAO, WHO uh, Diet and Chronic Disease Report and, and all the vast literature on non-communicable diseases that uh, higher intakes of these animal products lead to increased uh, risk for heart disease, cancers, etc. We also know that livestock grazing land uh, comes from a lot of deforestation in many parts of the world. But we also know that natural pasture land is a natural repository of plant biodiversity, rich repository, uh, and that together with the livestock grazing, there is a, it's a synergistic part of sustainability. But then we have the global carbon balances that we have to look at, the greenhouse gases. Uh, but at the same time, we've got species of plants that humans can't eat, but uh, ruminant animals can eat, these fibrous uh, pasture species. So in the end, uh, after this scientific symposium, and before, it was clear, uh, we need to look at the context. In other words, the food system or the ecosystem for guidance about dietary recommendations. We cannot have a global recommendation that says uh, consume fewer animal products. Because in a country like Mongolia, that will cause a lot of malnutrition. In a country like Kenya and other places, it will. In a country like the U.S., a recommendation like that will lead to, likely, fewer diet-related chronic diseases. So the, the recommendations have to be context-specific. And the essence of sustainable diets is the ecosystem approach. So what's the solution? One thing, of course is the development of new and better ways of providing protein from plants, which is, after all, a more sustainable solution in most parts of the world. One answer might be improving the protein content of those cheap, ubiquitous, high-energy cereal grains, like rice, corn, and wheat, that have always made up the lion's share of the diet of the world's poor. One way that improvements might be made is in exploring and exploiting underappreciated biodiversity within these foods. Over time, particularly in the 20th century, farming has become more and more large-scale, and this has led to fewer species and fewer varieties of these species being cultivated in greater and greater quantities. This loss of diversity may have also led to loss of nutritional value. Here's Dr. Burlingame again. The biodiversity loss is really very substantial on the planet. We get most of our dietary energy from very few staple foods. And even something like rice, in the past we had thousands of varieties that we could identify in different rice-producing countries. Presently, we have 82% uh, of the land cultivated in rice is only under two or three varieties. And this uh, is reflected in the nutrient content. Protein, for example, we have rice varieties with protein content as low as 5% or as high as almost 15%. These are so nutritionally significant. Many companies are also looking at ways of developing brand new varieties of these foods, by genetic modification and other means, that are even more nutrient-rich. Here's Dr. Miller describing the nutritional content of a new product called Quality Protein Maize, 
that was developed through many generations of careful crossbreeding. And what you can see is that the lysine concentration in, in the conventional maize is a little less than 3 grams per 100 grams of protein, and that's why lysine is a limiting amino acid in maize. Um, but in quality protein maize, you can see that it's about 4.5% lysine, a substantial improvement. Uh, and, and then if you look at the PD-COS, or the overall protein quality, taking into account the digestibility, you can see that the protein quality of the quality protein maize is substantially higher than the conventional maize. Now, the question is, does, is this really, does this really make a difference from a practical standpoint? Does it affect nutrition in areas where maybe perhaps protein malnutrition or protein inadequacy might be a problem? And there have been a few studies that, try, that have tried to look at this, uh, although the data is, is somewhat limited. Uh, but this is, a, this is an example of a paper that was uh, recently published by Gr Grunanta uh, in Food Policy, where they did a meta-analysis meta of the impact of QPM on child growth in several different low-income countries. It basically, they, they concluded that, that consumption of quality protein maize instead of uh, conventional maize among these children, uh, increased uh, growth in weight by 12%, uh, and they also increased, in, increased growth in height by 9%. So here's an example, I think, where plant breeding uh, can have a role to play in improving the nutritional quality of some staple food crops. Another answer might be in making even more efficient use of plants that are already rich in protein, like legumes. Here's Dr. Shastin again. The U.S. The soybean industry produces about 60 billion pounds of protein annually, but of that 60 billion pounds, less than 2% go to humans. So I've done the calculations of the U.S. soybean industry alone. Each 1% would provide the yearly minimum protein requirement for 8.5 million people. Not counting the soy production that goes on in Brazil, nor the soy production that goes on in Argentina. It would be roughly 2.2 times that. Dr. von Maltzahn's company is working now on some more radical innovations involving plant sources. They're undertaking a project of genetically modifying extremely simple microscopic plants, like algae, so that they produce a wide range of nutrients, including protein, that can then be extracted and recombined into food products. Here he is explaining. So if you think about uh, the system of inputs to desirable outputs. You'd want to make that as simple as possible. And so basically we've built around system, systems engineering a, uh, a system that allows single-cell photosynthetic organisms to be optimized to be able to, in a single step effectively, go from sunlight, CO2, nitrogen in fresh or salt water, depending on the, the type of organism that you're using, and be able to produce the exact same nutrients that we currently derive from agricultural processes. But basically what this, what this results in is a system that can produce orders of magnitude more of an essential nutrient, macronutrient category than our, our current processes of being able to produce the same. So if you look at uh, some of these are pretty easy to beat. Um, beef, for example, cows aren't, aren't the most effective way of taking solar energy and converting it into protein nutrition. Um, so you can... Achieve, it's achieve efficiencies that are four orders of magnitude beyond that. But even relative to soy protein, which is effectively the, the mainstay or world record holder for agricultural efficiency of protein production, there's two order of magnitude improvements that can be realized here. And so said differently, every day you could realize on a parcel of land the same yield that's associated with an annual soy yield with a system like this. 
There are several challenges to this approach, though. There are enormous technical difficulties to producing nutrients in this way, and a big culinary challenge of turning them into food that people would like to buy and eat. The history of nutrition is littered with well-meaning new technologies that didn't improve people's diets because they couldn't be talked into buying them. Also, producing individual nutrients and then combining them into food assumes that we completely understand the chemistry of the things we eat, and which parts are beneficial and why. And the truth is that we don't, at least not yet. Um, you know, when you consume a sandwich as opposed to just when you take in some, you know, specific chemical as a, as a drug agent, the pharmacology of the sandwich is three to nine orders of magnitude more complex. And I think that's, that's where the fun is going to be, is, is, is sort of recognizing complexity, interfacing with complexity, and, and trying to wield technologies that can start to get after that question. An important wrinkle in all of this, though, is that people often make choices about what to eat based on things that have very little to do with nutrition. In the modern world, societies like the United States that have the resources to choose to feed their people more or less whatever they want whenever they want, are willing to overlook all of the problems with using animals as food and dedicate quantities of time, land, and money to raising them that go far beyond the needs of their people for complete protein. This has contributed to a tremendous disparity that exists between the amount of animal source protein consumed in wealthier and less wealthy regions of the world. Here's Dr. Jessica Fanzo, Assistant Professor of Nutrition at Columbia. What we do know is that in the U.S. we're consuming way too much meat, and in low-income settings they're consuming very little. If they get any, you know, maybe uh, 20 grams once a month. So, I mean, I think we're... We're a complete inequitable distribution when it comes time to animal source proteins. This inequality leads to a new and interesting problem. As the economies of developing countries improve and their middle class grows, demand for meat begins to increase beyond what is nutritionally required for those populations. Because this new middle class sees eating a diet that's high in animal proteins as a sign of upward mobility and something to aspire to. This means that an even greater protein supply crisis might be on the way, not only because more people need more protein to be healthy, but because more and more people are going to want more protein than they need. Here's Dr. Stuart Craig, also from DuPont Nutrition and Health. As developing countries <clears throat> such as you know, Brazil and India and um, China um, develop a, gro a growing middle class and have um, high demand for a protein-rich diet. There's a, there's a certain um, expectation uh, of being able to do and experience what developed countries have already take for granted. How do we provide for that basic expectation? Some profound changes in attitude would need to happen in many, if not most, parts of the world for people to choose plant protein products over beef, pork, or chicken if they can afford to make the choice. Here's Dr. Witters again. Legumes are confronted with the perception that they're the poor person's meat. Uh, if anyone has greater income, they're going to purchase animal-based foods. There are many reasons, other than nutritional value, why people choose the foods that they eat. And so, 
is there a way to satisfy people's desire for meat while addressing the enormous environmental and economic demands of large-scale ranching? This question has led to the work that was featured in what were certainly the event's most sensational presentations. Researchers who are working to make meat, actual meat, without having to raise animals. Here's Dr. Gabor Forgach, professor of biological physics at the University of Missouri and co-founder of the biotech companies Organovo and Modern Meadow. Imagine if, uh, if we could do this uh, Build leather products or, or meat without killing animals, uh, using much less resources, energy, water, land, uh, in a, in, in eventually in a much more uh, environmentally friendly way, using much less chemicals and, um, and as I said, without harming the animals. So, so how do we do it? So here is the process that Modern Meadow follows. And you will find some of the processes that are common to bioprinting. So we isolate the cells from the animal. Uh, the animal is a happy camper after, afterwards. So with a, with a harmless biopsy, we scoop up a few million cells. Uh, in the case of leather, that would be uh, skin cells or other specialized cells that produce the underlying material. Uh, in the case of meat, those are muscle cells. We grow those muscle cells up for the meat, and that's the challenge. We need to do it relatively fast, uh, economically, in an economically viable way. Then comes the, the magic. We need to construct the tissue. We need to construct the tissue that eventually will give rise to the meat. Now, if it is a carpaccio, then it's a thin piece of tissue. If it is a big steak, then it's a thick slice of a tissue. And that really depends what you want to do. Of course, you need more cells if you want to make the, the, the bigger slice. Uh, but that's the way it goes, and I'll, I'll show you how that uh, process is really undertaken uh, with this bioprinting technology. What that means, bioprinting technology, is that Forgatch and his collaborators work on building biological tissue using what's basically a 3D printer. They take the cells they've grown in a culture from the original sample and use the printer to arrange them into living tissue. So once you have the structure, and I want to very much emphasize that this three-dimensional bioprinting, what it does, it, it puts down discrete components, uh, cellular particles, uh, clusters of cells. Those are still discrete particles. The magic really happens post-printing. What happens afterwards is biology. We know we can direct the process, but at the end of the day, the cells do what they need to do. And so they assemble, uh, the buying particles fuse, a lot of other morphogenetic processes take place. Various cells in the multicellular buying particle will eventually all acquire their physiological position. And that's how this tissue comes about. And then we go to our chef and we tell him, here is the raw material, Please make it yummy. This may seem like complete science fiction, but similar work is actually happening right now in several laboratories around the world. I ate such a piece of uh, uh, tissue, muscle tissue, in 2011, back in time. Uh, since then, we've done it several times. I'm still alive. I'm here. Uh, it was not the tastiest at that time, but we have made progress. That problem with the taste and texture of meat grown in a Petri dish 
points to one of the biggest challenges facing this technology. Much of the flavor of meat, and also its nutritional content, are developed during the life of the animal, from what it eats and how it lives. The current crop of test tube meat doesn't taste like much because it was never a cow. And it also lacks much of the micronutrient content that makes meat such a valuable part of many people's diets. It's also, at the moment, tremendously expensive. The group led by another presenter, Dr. Mark Post from Maastricht University in the Netherlands, produced test tube ground beef that was made into a hamburger and eaten, to much fanfare, on British television. But the cost of producing that burger was more than $330,000. A big leap from the one or two dollars it cost to buy a similar sized traditional burger from a fast food restaurant. And even if those issues could be solved, it's probably an understatement that there would be likely a period of transition before people could get used to the idea of eating laboratory-grown meat. So what about the other kind of meat? The traditional kind, from cows and pigs and chickens and fish. Is there a way to make it more sustainable? One solution might be in looking for inefficiencies in how it's produced, stored, and transported. There's a huge problem in global nutrition as a whole with inefficiency in the food supply. People in less wealthy parts of the world produce much less food than they could because of lack of access to modern agricultural techniques and technologies. And people in wealthier countries have more food available to them than they eat. So much of it goes to waste. Here's Dr. Burlingame again. And food losses and waste is another reason for the, the problems of the dogma that currently prevails, uh, which is by the year 2050, with 9 billion people uh, in the world, we will need to increase agricultural production by 70 to 90 percent. If we took care of the losses and waste in food systems and along food chains, we would not have to bring that much extra land, extra natural resources into agricultural production. This problem is compounded when you're dealing with animal products, because as we heard earlier, they are so prone to spoilage and bacterial infection. Another piece of the puzzle might come from making better use of other kinds of land animal sources, besides the big five, cows, pigs, chickens, sheep, and goats. For instance, there are some parts of the world where they enthusiastically eat insects, like crickets and locusts, which are nutritious and plentiful. We also have some interesting data on uh, nutrient content of meats from these underutilized uh, animals uh, and breeds, underutilized breeds, uh, buffaloes, camels, uh, yaks, things like that. Uh, and the particularly uh, dairy animals, the, the composition is, uh, is very interesting. But insects is the latest, most interesting uh, animal kingdom uh, aspect for nutrition that we're looking at. It's clear that this is a complex and important problem that's only going to get more important as the world's population continues to grow, and that the solution is likely to be a combination of all of these things, developing new and better sources of protein, and making more efficient use of the ones we already have. It's also clear that the amount of meat, particularly beef, that we eat in the United States is not going to be available worldwide anytime soon. Cows just take up too much space how long we in the U.S. and in Western Europe can keep consuming so much more meat than anyone else remains to be seen.
This podcast has been a production of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and Science and the City, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, visit us on the web at nyas.org slash whatwedo slash nutrition and nutritionresearchagenda.org. You can learn more about the event covered in this podcast and watch a virtual e-briefing of the complete presentations given there at www.nyas.org slash protein supply hyphen E-B. We welcome your comments about this or any Science and the City program to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.